Hello, and thank you for listening to part two of our podcast on Native American boarding schools. In part one, you met a pair of survivors of the school detail the abuse they and others experienced. Now, you'll meet Meredith Kennedy, who also attended the school, but near the time it closed in the 1980s. And you'll hear the deep connection to the school that started after she left. It's weird because I'm like in that weird gray phase of like when the school was closing, when all of these um, initiatives came out again with the U.S. government to now like, oh, maybe genocide was a bad thing. Yeah. Assimilation yeah. was a bad thing. Let's like rectify this. Um, I would just say tribal citizen and community member okay. because that's like how I'm coming at everything I'm doing is just that way. And what years did you attend? So uh, 19, so I was born in 1980, school closed in 1986. Um, Everybody and, says 83. Yes, and that's because of boarding. Okay. So, but the school was, um, open. The school was open until 1986. So um, I went there. That's the only place I ever remember going from childcare, mm -hmm. all the way until um, the school closed and we were shipped to Harbor Springs to public the, school. To the public school. Yeah. What do you remember about life at the school? So, like, this is a weird one, right? Because I had, um, I, <laughs> how do I start with this? Um, I remember the daycare being downstairs. We were never allowed to use um, the west side stairwell. We all had to go up on the east side stairwell, which would have been right um, to the left of, or I'm sorry, to the right of the, the entryway. Um, I remember Sister Ameldas. She was like the headmistress, little old lady, always had suckers in her um, office. Um, and Sister Rosaire, because we were related to her. Really? So um, I got into, um, we had like the slide, you know, like those <laughs> slides from like 1980. Oh, yeah. And they were yeah. like the hot metal slides. Um, I had actually broken my arm. Um, falling off the top, the second to last stair, and I broke my arm. And so the, um, for while I was healing, um, and this was in like right as I was going into kindergarten, they, I got to stay in like the nunnery, for lack of a better word, because yeah. that's actually what used to be where this entrance is, and then we had a Kwanzaa hut. So I got to stay in the nunnery, and I remember like in the afternoon, I got to eat a lot of popsicles. And I watched um, Perry Mason because they had TBS. And I know that's like really like in the 80s. <laughs> in the 80s, yeah. Um, because they had TBS. And so I remember like eating lunch with all of the sisters and doing that, and Sister Rosier really taking care of me. But that's because later I found out that she's actually one of our cousins. Um, so my. And then I remember going to, and I, I, I was just telling um, a friend I went to school with here. Um, I remember going up to public school and um, the U.S. government passed the Indian Education Act in the 70s and they said, all right, hey, we're going to teach all these Indian kids how to be Indian again. And I remember on Wednesdays we were shipped over from public school to the high school in the afternoon and I was like, well, where's all my friends? And I was like looking around and I was like, where's all my friends because for the longest time? Because we had always said in our family, like Holy Childhood was for all the Indian kids. Um, that's when I found out that in my generation, not all of those kids that went to school were actually Indian. And so then I got separated essentially um, to like re-become Indian yeah. um, by the school system 
and like looked around and was like, wow, there's not very many of us anymore. So that's like my memories um, when I was younger, breaking my arm. I remember we actually had um, a gentleman uh, when I was like 10, my parents really, really talked to me about someone who worked at the school who was sexually molesting children. Um, and so they were really, really worried because he was the one who had taken care of me when my arm broke. And I let them know I don't remember any of that, but that could have also been like packed away in my mind. Um, what I really remember about the school is when I was an adult. And um, I was in my 30s and I was the uh, working for my tribal government, Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians as the Gichigawi Bipskabe Director, which uh, meant archives, education, cultural education, library. And um, we got a call in my office and they said, hey, we found some human remains. Uh, why don't you guys come on down and get them? And uh, it's when they were repaving the road here in Harbor Springs, when they were redoing the road. And so when someone says like, what's your memory of holy childhood? It's actually the memory of being in my 30s. And over there with a big pile of dirt with um, part of my staff sifting through to get remains um, and like bawling and not knowing like, wow, um, we had given, we'd been given two days to go and collect our ancestors. Um, we didn't get all of them. Um, and they're still under the road because whoever we couldn't get um, got paved back over. I kind so. of asked Dawn this question. It, the understanding is these were not ancient, this is not an ancient burial ground that was found. This was much more recent. Absolutely. So uh, a little bit of history about Harbor Springs. Harbor Springs is known as Wikwidongsing, which is the place of the springs, so many springs. Um, if we're looking at where traditionally Anishinaabe people in this area lived, it was actually at Goodhart, Middle Village. Much further north than yes. where we are right so now. halfway in between Harbor Springs and Cross Village on um, the Tunnel of Trees, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you're gonna have Middle Village. That's actually where we were located. Um, there's historical references to that with one of our last chiefs who um, wrote a book, uh, Andrew Macabanesi, Blackbird. Um, so he even writes about that. We were actually brought to this area um, as part of assimilation because it meant that we were removed from things that we knew. And who would ever build their house on a swamp? You don't do that. Um, even recently, the city of Harbor Springs, the U.S. government said this is in a floodplain zone. So if we think about logically where people would build, and we've been here Harbor for- Springs was not it. No. And so Which when- is somewhat ironic considering this is considered a major resort destination- yes. Of Michigan and the Midwest. And it's a floodplain. Yeah. Um, so indigenous people knew that because we called this um, Wikwidonksing, the place of all the springs, the, the, the water. Water coming up yep. from the ground. So this whole area, um, when Don was talking about that, um, this whole area has been known to hold all of our relatives, our ancestors that um, didn't make it out of boarding school. Um, there was digs um, that have been performed by the tribe in conjunction with the church when they redid the church and they took those remains. Um, you'll hear stories from survivors because there was another cemetery on the other side where um, kind of where that eve is 
the awning that was actually where all of the brothers and the priests live and so there was a building there and there was um, before they did the playground um, in I think it was in the 50s or 60s before they built that playground that's where they also had bodies and so there you'll hear stories from survivors of how they had to go and dig up their relatives and then go take them up to the big cross that is now in the Holy Childhood Cemetery. So it is known in our community um, that our relatives are buried here. And we're not talking about adult remains no. that were found here. These were clearly when we When we were um, working in 2011, um, you could clearly tell. So I have a background in biology. <laughs> um, you cannot mistake an adult femur for a child femur. The tragic part of this is, do you know or have any idea or way of knowing who these children were when, when they were buried here? Um, so this is where it's really difficult. Uh, we are constantly denied access to records. Um, I think it's really unfortunate as I've been seeing pictures of boarding schools, how they blur out the nuns and the priests, but they keep all of our faces. And if you were to do that today without a release from a parent, um, you can't. And how traumatizing is that for you to see your picture next to this nun or this priest or this authority figure of the church who might have caused you harm at one point? We aren't cognizant of that. Um, and the church, we have requested and requested and we have been told as a community, even as a tribal government, for those who work in government, uh, they're lost in a fire. They were taken away in a flood. Um, we can't find them, they're lost, they're so old. So we can't even identify some of our people and talk to families about, hey, did one of your relatives make it home? Yeah. Um, there's stories in our community um, where um, children are running away from the school and they're only documented because an authority figure from the church has told the sibling, you're your sister's dead. They ran away. That's what. That's why they're not no longer in yes. school with you. Yes. Um, some children made it back home. Other children didn't. But we don't know because we don't have the full story because we don't have access to those records of our relatives. It's got a sting, more than sting. Um. So I try really, really hard with my righteous anger uh, to use it in a good way, in a positive way, um, which is why I tell people, you know, don't always focus on our trauma. Like we have to get that out. We have to get that healing out. But part of my healing is to hold people accountable. Um, and that includes my own community. Um, and I've said this multiple times. Um, it is not the church that is going to take action. It is not the tribal government who is going to take action. It is our community that is going to take action. And so um, my sting, my pain, my hurt, I funnel that to my community and say, hey, we are indeed the change makers. What are we gonna do? We know the problems in our community. We know historical trauma. How are we gonna break that cycle? I know the Interior Department is looking at researching what happened at these boarding schools, hoping to have a report ready in the, sometime in the spring of 2022, but you guys aren't waiting. 
for that report. As no. much as could, as much as could come out of that, <laughs> you're not sitting around and waiting. No, our um, healing council is not waiting. We have a strategic plan, um, and every day I'm so grateful that um, on that strategic plan, our first thing is healing. And so that's this is like part of what we're doing um, is getting our stories out. Our our second thing is um, talking to the greater community and spreading awareness. Uh, we have done that so well that I've been. Um, people that I haven't even met have reached out to me and said, hey, I'm a superintendent for an ISD or an assistant superintendent of an ISD downstate. I wanna make sure that this is put into Michigan curriculum. We wanna put it underneath genocide because they have to teach about genocide. That is one of our strategic plans as the community. Because this was a cultural genocide. Yes. That happened at the And it's my understanding in 1969 that the US Senate said that Indian boarding schools were a form of genocide. So, that was in 1969. 1969. And we're still hearing stories of abuse here in Harbor Springs from the, 70s. the 1970s. Yes. Um, so the fact that in Michigan education we already have part of the education that requires, um, I think it's six hours for students from eight grade eight to grade 12 to talk about genocide, but we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about the Armenian mm -hmm. genocide. Um, there's now, which I'm so grateful um, that this gentleman heard about us because he also has the power to do something as an assistant superintendent of an ISD of over 500 employees. That's huge for them to reach out from, to us yeah. from downstate. Um, so I get good news like that all the time. Um, that is not the tribal government doing that. I have, um, in July, after our, our first um, event here, I wrote to my tribal government and I let them know, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we've come up with the community. There's only been three tribal counselors, one who is very much supportive of us. Um, our executive branch has not reached out to me. Um, we found out that the Bureau of Interior is actually requesting public comment from someone in our healing circle who is not even working with tribal government. Um, so we plan as a community to come together and put in our public notice and say, hey, we have a plan, we are organized, we're doing more than our tribal government is doing. Um, let us control our healing. How did this, the healing group, the healing council kind of come about? What, what, what spurred that? <laughs> um, so you wanna talk about me being angry. Um, so when our relatives up in Canada were talking about um, having found their, um, their relatives who have been buried, I think at first it was 215 children um, in one of the First Nations. Um, I had people contacting me and they're like, Meredith, oh my gosh, this is terrible. How can we support First Nations? How can we support First Nations? I finally like kind of lost my measy. And I said, I, I went out on Facebook, all crazy looking, did a Facebook Live with my son, um, and said, hey, this is not our backyard. This is not Canada. This is the US. This is Harbor Springs. Harbor Springs had the last Indian boarding school to close. And people were shocked. And I said, if you never really, never, never dawned on them, never. Uh, we used to have a plaque, it's now gone. There used to be a plaque out here. It was a historical it, marker. It was a historical yeah. marker, and, it's, and it was big. Yeah. It was like a big three-foot sign, and it wasn't there. Um, so I said, if you want to do something, if you truly want to be an Indigenous ally, 
then you will come and join me on one of the most busiest days in Harbor Springs, um, which is the 4th of July. And so I, I made a document. I had, um, I'm terrible at English. And so I asked um, one of my friends, will you please look through this so I don't have it, so I'm not lost in my message because I put a comma somewhere wrong. Um, and I handed out information. And I only had like 100 friends on Facebook. I had people that I didn't even know coming. Um, and it was great because they were helping me hand out information as we had the art in the park here. Um, and the word got out. And so we provided that just as um, an information and that's really how we got started because then um, I had a bunch of people contacting me saying, Meredith, that was really great. We really needed that. What else are we going to do? And I was like, well, I think I was just voluntold <laughs> <laughs> what I have to do. Um, and I was like, you know what? It needs to be done. Um, we need to get this out. We need to let um, America also have that shame. Um, and we need to no longer be the Indian problem because that is how U.S. policy has always treated us as the Indian problem. Um, so we needed to be the Indian solution. What did you first think when you saw everything coming out of Canada earlier this year? Um, my first thought was when are our relatives in South America going to say something? Because it happened there too. Oh, absolutely. When is everyone going to understand that this quote unquote new world, um, which we call in my community Turtle Island, because if you look at the US globe, it looks like a turtle. Um, and that has to do with some of our teachings. When are they gonna realize that um, all of their freedoms come at a cost and they come at the cost of another people, the original people. And so I was like, hmm, when are we gonna hear from our relatives there? from other indigenous people who have been colonized. And then that's when I kind of lost my mezi and everybody was contacting me because they were like, how can we help? And um, then I was like, all right, we need to do action. So that, that was my first thought is, it's your front yard, not your backyard, and it's your neighbors. Like y'all are guilty. Why did, or why do you think what happened at Holy Childhood stayed so quiet? for so long. Um, so, let's look at Harbor Springs. Um, Harbor Springs is full of some of the most affluent people around the nation. If we look over here at Harbor Point, okay, we have Hoovers, Wrigley's, Proctors, and the Gambles. Um, these are all people I either helped my grandma clean her house with back in the day um, or babysat for them. We have families with so much money. Why would you want this dirty secret out? We have so much tourism and our economy booms on tourism. Let's not forget also that indigenous people were part of that tourism. We have Ottawa Stadium where we were allowed to practice our pageantry for money, but we weren't at the same time because that didn't pass until 1978 with the American Religious Freedom Act. We could only do pageantry because it was good for tourism. Money. We call that junior. It all, it all came back. It, it comes to down this. to money. How would you like to have one of your second or third homes in beautiful Harbor Springs um, and be told that 
when you walk up and down and you're on this when you have the 4th of July art fair that you're walking on the remains of Indian children. It doesn't sit well. No. When you are told, because these stories will come out, when you are told those donations of those Christmas gifts that you gave to those poor Indian kids who didn't have a family were then turned around and sold so the church could have money. Again, money. You don't want to believe that lie. We like to sit and talk about the U.S. Constitution and how it says separation of church and state. The church was given federal subsidies. To run this to school. To run this school. Not only that, but they were, we were thumbprinted and named. So they would also get our commodities that were for our families through treaty rights that were meant to come back to our families who were still living in our reservation. Which in some cases was almost more valuable than yeah, you got a food. donation. Yeah, you got food to run them. You don't have to worry about that. So imagine your family's legacy being that you supported the genocide by being part of this economy here, by giving your good-hearted donation to those poor Indian kids and not realizing the horrific abuses that they faced for generations. There was cultural, physical, and sexual abuse. Absolutely. That happened inside this school. Absolutely. The fact that I, um, all of those things happened in our community and they have touched every single one. You will have someone who went to this school. Um, their grandfather might have went to this school. But because you are taught that love and discipline is sexual assault, is physical assault, is verbal assault, is really emotional torment also, they will talk about how their grandfather was their perp. Because that's what they were taught at a young age. This school took kids as young as four. So imagine being four years old um, and on holidays, because now, oh, we're gonna celebrate Christmas. And you get these gifts and you're forced to open them because it looks good for a picture snapshot. Um, we'll let you play with them for a little bit because all of our wealthy donors like that and then never seeing those toys again. Imagine being tormented as a little girl um, in a dorm on Halloween and they drop you off at the cemetery and tell you to get your way home because the devil's gonna get you. Those are things that are still in our community. And by understanding that, you start to understand how there have been generations of Substance, guess, yeah. issues, challenges yeah. so, in Native American communities. Yeah, so if we talk about, there's a big fancy word that everybody in education and social work likes to use, it's called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, right? It's like a buzzword. Um, indigenous people have been doing that since 1492. <laughs> um, 700 years. Yes. Um, and, and more so here probably in the 1500s, mm -hmm. right, as we had people coming in. Um, in our community, we call that blood memory. So you're also going to hear a word that's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is actually science, and it says when you experience trauma in such a way, it actually affects your DNA. So not only are we talking about how um, indigenous people discipline their children or treat others or how their relationships go, we're also talking about social detriments of health, diabetes, heart disease. Those are huge and they kill our families. 
um, alcoholism, substance use, depression, suicide. We have one of the highest suicide rates in our community. There's higher rates of all of those in Native Absolutely. American communities than if you compare them to other ethnic groups Absolutely. here in the United States. Yeah. So when we when we talk about like just historical trauma and what that does, we also have to address there are real physical things that have happened in our DNA that has changed that, and that's science. Um, you know, we, we have a different, we call it blood memory. Um, what we also know though, is that with blood memory, we also carry the traditions of our community. And so that's why we are having this, um, our, 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 our seed has been planted within our bodies and now it's starting to grow where we're now allowed to do those things. I happen to be in one of the first generations that has some education sovereignty, but body sovereignty. Um, you'll hear stories in our community of little boys being sterilized. It wasn't here at the school. Here at the school. Um, and they, you know, thought that they were going for something else. It's not until they reached manhood that they realized that they couldn't have children because they kept getting bladder infections and things like that. And so they'd go to the doctor and they'd be like, well, you're sterilized. Um, the bodily, bodily function that was supposed to happen wasn't happening. Yep. Um, so it's, you know, I, I'm in this great generation of like cultural reckoning. <laughs> and you talk about cultural cu cultural reckoning. That's part of what this group is too. There's there's the healing group oh, that you yeah. guys are trying to get the culture out there and you know re-energize it after how many years of it trying to be squashed. Yes. And the first thing, um, that's why when our um, strategic plan is laid out, it's healing first, because then that gets that out, that gets that trauma out into the universe. Um, and then awareness, because we need everyone in the community to at least recognize that this has happened and awareness that this has happened. We're not looking for people to feel guilty. We're just looking for them to say, wow, I just thought all Indian women who went here were angry and not realizing that it's the trauma that they face. And so how can you support us? How can you support us by even acknowledging that it existed? That's one of the biggest supports that people can give our community is say, oh my God, I heard about that. I'm gonna tell someone else and how can I help you? I know we kind of dove right into holy childhood, but <laughs> to back up roughly 150 years, how did boarding schools first start? So, here in the United States. So there's a, a, a couple different um, ways. It was really a, a compound of um, the Indian problem. So if we look at Lord Jeffrey Amherst, um, he was a, a British soldier and he um, said the easiest way to get rid of Indians is smallpox blankets or alcohol because we're not worth a bullet. So when we talk about boarding schools, we have to back up before the U.S. was even the U.S. Um, so after we survived Lord Jeffrey Amherst and his way of getting rid of the Indian. And that would have been in the 1700s. Yeah, 1700s, okay. yeah. Um, then we get into the, um, one of the most important documents in history, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, he has excited domestic insurrections among its frontiers inhabitants, the merciless Indian savages. We are known as the 27th Grievance. For the same document that says all men are created equal, the entire indigenous population is considered merciless Indian savages. We aren't even humans. So 
If we then look at other policy that was put into in the early um, 1800s, and I, I won't be able to give you the exact dates, but I'll be able to give you the policies. So the Indian boarding school policy that said, hey, we need to have some assimilation. And why did this happen? Because people wanted lands. We needed to succeed our lands. And so you're going to have um, the Treaty of Detroit here in Michigan. You're going to have the Treaty of Washington here that said we are going to take your lands, right? Now you have to remember, Native people didn't have, Indigenous people, we don't own land. We steward the land. It's not considered you guys are no. passing around deeds no. among different communities. No, it was how are we using this land appropriately and how are we using this land in conjunction with other living things that are here. Um, so we had those policies come into place. We had the Dawes Act, which was huge. Um, so the Dawes Act essentially said um, we would give, I think it was 160 acres for families and 80 acres for single people to tribes, right? Or to tribal individuals for their land. And it opened the floodgates to all this land. Well, in order to become enfranchised citizens, um, we had to start speaking your language. We had to start practicing your customs. Um, so boarding schools with the Dawes Act really exploded. And I think that was in 1887. Um, and then that's when holy childhood became at its forefront. Uh, for a hundred years, yep. And for a hundred years, they operated, um, and there's all these other policies that get intertwined into it because we were the Indian problem. Uh, indigenous people were originally housed underneath the BIA, which was part of the War Department. So you have the War Department. The War Department. So you have all of these U.S. policies working in conjunction to kill the savage, save the man. Because the government felt there was a quote unquote Indian, Indian problem. problem. And boarding schools were part of that. Yep. So you were. Envision solution to the envision. How problem. do we best assimilate them? We need to get them while they're young and we need to indoctrinate them. And at the same time, um, what is a great way to get them there? Um, starve their families out. So you're no longer allowed to practice your ceded territory rights. So imagine for generations, you've been told that you can hunt a deer anywhere you want and you can fish anywhere you want, and now you're stuck because of the Dawes Act on this land where you can't do any of that. That's average, it's an average piece of land yes, at best. At best, at best. Um, and it's not on the land that you're familiar with. Um, so Land that you haven't hunted before. That yeah, that you haven't, yeah. Or, or you're told, yes, yeah, so you're told that you have to farm but you've never farmed on this piece of land. Yes, this is not historically where we would have farmed. Now imagine if you're going fishing and then all of a sudden all these people are coming in and um, stopping you from fishing, from feeding your family. What are you gonna do? You're gonna send your kid to the boarding school because at least you know they have food. Because the church has food. Without asking questions. Mm -hmm. And when things started to go downhill, um, we have this, this word that I was taught when I was little, it's called Kedewiasque, the woman in the black. That is our boogeyman. It's none. Because nuns wore black habits. Because nuns were in the black. So if the priest would come in and could not take you from your house, the nun could not come and take you from the house because families hid their children. Mm -hmm. um, the sheriff would come in and tell you that you have to give up this child, otherwise we are going to forcefully remove them and, and take away your parental rights. Because we don't think that you can take care of them of how you're living, which is, by the way, we've been living like that for centuries. But it's not the way that we as Americans live. 
Um, so there was lots of all these compounding U.S. policies that went into boarding schools. And you can look, even starting with Carlisle, which is where my great-grandma went, which was run by the federal government, it was kill the savage, save the man. And this was not just the Catholic Church. Oh, right? no. I mean, it was multiple religious organizations. Yes. It was the government. It was the U.S. government. Certainly the Catholic Church was a prominent I think the Catholic Church had the most, mm -hmm. and that would be something that you could check with. Um, I know I, I think I've given you that map of boarding schools yep. before um, that will list all of the known. Known. Because there's also um, not on the register orphanages that were run by the Catholic Church. Which so essentially that was had the same the same mission, duty, the same yep. role. Yeah. And there will be stories that you hear from people here that won't be bad. Um, I think that has to do with a little bit of colorism. Mm -hmm. The the more you look like an Indian, right, the stereotyped Indian, because I don't look like an Indian from like stereotype, right? I look like the St. Pauli girl. I don't look like the girl on the butter. I don't look like the girl on the U-Haul. Um, and so I think there's also colorism because I have heard from people in our community that the darker and more Indian-like you looked, the worse you were treated. The worse the abuse was. Because for some reason, this also has to do with um, uh, eugenics, right? Is, oh, well you must be more Indian because you look more Indian. So we're gonna really make sure it's out of you. Um, and how can we water that down? How can we water down the savage that way? So you will hear stories of people who are like, I never faced any of that, but I heard it. Or you'll hear stories from boarders versus day students who were vastly different. So People who were here full-time versus just during the day. Yeah, so like my dad was here um, as a day boarder, or he was here as a day student and not as a boarder, so. What's it like to watch all of this come out in a prominent way? Because you guys have been talking about it for so long. Oh, yes, yeah. And now here it is, for better or for worse, in the national spotlight. So, um, <laughs> I can, I'm going to have two ways that I answer this. Um, it feels really good, but at the same time, it's really scary. Uh, my husband this morning, because I was like, oh, I'm a little nervous, and he's like, just remember where we live, and I'm black, and you're an Indian, and our kids are Afro-Indigenous. Just remember where we live, and anything you do today will affect them. And that is a scary thought, because we're, we're talking today about reclaiming our ancestors. Like, hey, let's just be able to give everyone in this space right now a proper burial. Mm -hmm. And some people in our community don't look at that way. They look at us as a threat for just wanting to make sure that our relatives, our relatives, let's be very clear about this, our relatives are taken care of. So in some ways, I'm very, very excited and happy that this is going, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this work. But at the same time, I also have to be realistic about the environment that we live in. And There's that, still a lot of hostility towards Native Americans. Yes. Um, and we live in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody. I'm gonna, I, I know that I am that Indian lady. I know that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I'd rather have people talking about me than pushing this back down. The fact that in 2011, when you talk to people around this community and there was a huge pile of our ancestors, it was you think that, that something would have been done then, but not even our tribal government wanted to rock the boat. Because that would have been messy. That would have been very messy.
that wouldn't have looked good. Um, I'm a community citizen first and foremost. I care about my community. I don't care that your guilt or your complicit behavior in something um, hurts your feelings. Because for all of my ancestors under this road and my relatives, they deserve a proper burial. My families within my community deserve healing. My families deserve to be able to say for the next seven generations, we are going to heal. And we will be a people that we know we are and that we have always been. So that's like my, my twofold. We also reached out to the Diocese of Gaylord about the allegations from Holy Childhood. They sent us a statement from their apostolic administrator that reads in part, these matters are deeply concerning and I join the past bishops of this diocese who have expressed sincere apology for wrongdoing that has caused such lasting harm and suffering. The diocese remains committed to an affirming relationship with tribal members and our prayer is for continued healing for all involved particularly those who are still suffering today. And Pope Francis recently said he is willing to travel to Canada to take part in healing and reconciliation with Native American communities. That visit is expected to happen in the coming months. Washington, D.C. is also taking action. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American to hold a cabinet position, has ordered a review of U.S. Native American boarding school policies. She's tasked former Bay Mills Tribal President Brian Newland with compiling that report. Newland currently serves as Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs at the Interior Department. The report is expected to detail historic records along with possible burial sites. Newland said in a statement back in September, engaging tribes is a necessary step as we work to shed light on what happened at federal boarding schools and chart our path forward. These conversations will not be easy, but they are critical as we truly investigate the legacy that these institutions have left behind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsolved. Be sure to join us next month as we dive into another unsolved mystery from right here in northern Michigan. For 9 and 10 News, I'm David Lydon.